conversation. Right, we do. Very good. I am here with uh, David Gilmore, writer, broadcaster, and author of A Perfect Night to Go to China, a book that has just won the Governor General's Award for, you say, the best novel in the country? No. I got the best jury. Yeah, the problem is if there's one different jury member, then the prize might well have gone to somebody else. Look, I would like to say, you know, it's the best novel in the country, but uh, I've written other books which were good, which were not even shortlisted, and that depends simply on those three or five people that you get. And so I, I hesitate not for one second about throwing myself on my knees in gratitude that for some reason they picked these three people. Because if even one of them had been different, I probably wouldn't be having... Which doesn't say much for the uh, the objectivity of uh, jurists. Well, it's like the Academy Awards, though. You know, I mean, how many times do you sit throwing socks at the television set? Uh, or how, for example, does Keanu Reeves ever get a job in any film? No, uh, the things are ludicrously partial. It has to do with sensibility. You know, I mean, you put three intelligent people in a room, give them four drinks, and ask them what their favorite movies are, and you'll have a brawl and probably a contemptuous one fairly quickly. Well, it's interesting you mention the jurist, because the Giller and the Gigi's didn't have one title that was uh, common between them, which which I think uh, gets to your point and proves it. Right, yeah. No, I, I, I don't even know what the other books on my list are. I, when I heard I was nominated, I just thought, I don't want to have anything to do with this at all. If I start thinking about it, if I start thinking about who the jurists are or what the other books are, I'm going to turn this delightful thing. And getting a nomination is a real gas. Like, when you don't get nominated, you just poo-poo the whole thing. and You think, well, it's favoritism and it's all that stuff. But I have to tell you, it is... You get nominated. When you get that phone call in your kitchen in the morning, it's real exciting. You know, and I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm 55 years old, and I've had lots of children, and lots of nice things happen to me. But I got to you, that phone call was a complete gas. You know, you sort of say five times in a row, uh, is this some kind of ugly, practical joke? Is this Frank Magazine calling? Yeah. Uh, is this some ex-girlfriend who's really decided to stick it to me after 15 years? Then we realize, of course, that it's not an ex-girlfriend. You realize that you're actually going to be able to stick it to every single person who's ever disliked you because as soon as this gets out it's going to be on the radio and in the newspapers yep. and everybody who's ever been a prick to you is going to have to sit there and eat it yeah I, I, I get that because and in fact this gets to a theme that I want to discuss and that is the theme that I've seen running through your work has has been this need for affirmation this uh, desire for uh, this hunger for women, and in fact, that's one of the things that Hunger. endeared sorry endeared me to you when when I first came across you in the early '90s on TV. When you interviewed women, it was as if you were wanting to devour them on the screen, and I could relate to that sort of horny kind of craving, and I and I loved you for that. My and, goodness gracious! And I I see that as a theme throughout your work. But what I see in this book is that, and perhaps it's maturity on your part, uh-huh. I, I, maybe not, uh-huh. but what I see in this book is, uh, is perhaps you've overcome this <coughs> craving, this need, right. and you have found a, a deeper kind of a love for a child, and that has taken the edge off this hunger and this craving, is that correct? Well, you know, that's, a, that's, a, <clears throat> that's an intelligent, if long, question. Uh, <laughs> but, 
but <laughs> it's my show. Though. <laughs> you know what I used to say to people, that to people on TV when they say, "You know, I'm not really sure I like where this is going," and I'd say, "Well, <laughs> it's my show now." <laughs> um, first of all, uh, I, I want to just—you uh, uh, talked about a, a hunger for affirmation and an appetite for women as if they were the same thing. They're actually not the same thing. They certainly aren't the same thing for me. My interest, my almost pathological interest in women during the 20 years or so that I was a single man uh, had to do with uh, obviously a physical appetite for women. Uh, it also was an authentic, an authentic, no-nonsense quest to love. When you get to be a certain age, you realize that it's very, very hard to find somebody who's sexually compatible and emotionally compatible and intellectually compatible. It's really hard to get all of those in one one number. And and that sounds. But it's like fun trying to find that person. Well, it, it is fun up to a certain age, and then after a while, when you find yourself squeezed into a jumpsuit at fifty uh, at a discotheque, uh, <laughs> you you. you <laughs> still have discos out there? Well, I don't know, <laughs> but I don't want to find out. And I sure don't want to be finding wearing a jumpsuit when I do. Uh, the search for women can become in itself completely pathetic. Um, but my, my appetite for women was because I wanted, in this corny, I truly believed that if you went through enough dates and saw enough people and didn't waste time with people you knew weren't right for you or you weren't right for them, that you would actually get this package of sex, emotion, and intellectual companionship. As long as you were really rigorous, as long as you kept saying, uh, you can have it all. You really do get to have it. You, but you just, you got to be prepared to, to be, to, to, to look at looking for a woman like looking for a job. You've sort of got to get up and put time into it and you have to keep moving. But as long as you were operating in good faith, and I was, which is to say I wanted to be in love with somebody. But were I, you, were you perpetually dissatisfied? No, I'm searching for the perfect combination. No, no, I wasn't, no, I, but I intuited it, you know, I mean, I was very lucky. I had, you know, two children with two marvelous women, you know, a long time ago, uh, and I really loved these women. I really do, and I still do, but when those marriages broke up for 20, after 20, 20 years ago, I wanted to have this one thing, which was that I would feel that I didn't want to be with anyone else when I was with this woman. It was just simple. I just wanted to be in the present. I wasn't waiting for something to happen. I wasn't nostalgic for something that had happened. I wanted to sit in a room with this woman thinking, I don't want to be I anywhere have else. I have everything. And that's all I wanted. Yeah. You know? And I'm saying you've got to work real hard and look for a long time to find it. And, 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 and when I did, I was old enough not to ruin it because it's one thing to be old enough to recognize the right woman when you find it. But it's quite another thing to be old enough and mature enough not to then wreck that relationship. Wreck it by what? By continuing to look after you've found what you wanted. By being unfaithful. Yeah, by being unfaithful. Because the thing is that looking becomes an almost pathological activity. And when you find what you want, your body is so trained to keep going that you actually keep looking even after you've found it. Well, it's the craving, the, the, the unsatisfaction. And, 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 but even when you're satisfied, you, it's like your body won't stop looking. And when I met my wife, uh, there were first, uh, for the first few months, there were a few uh, overlaps because it was like you've gone to the bookstore, you've looked for Le Grand Monde, you found it, but you can't you keep looking for other books. And finally, I realized after a couple of months that I had what I wanted and that it was actually the trick to being an adult was to not ruin it. And one thing that you, you learn is that there is no other game than monogamy. If you're going to be with a woman, you've got to be monogamous. Mm -hmm. That's all there is to it. Otherwise, it's like every act of infidelity really is, I believe it, it's like a coffin nail in your relationship. You think you're getting away with it, but you're not. Eventually, it's going to rise up and bite you in the ass, and you're going to be squeezed into that jumpsuit at 50, asking somebody to dance. And so, 
you know, when my wife and I finally had the conversation two or three months into the relationship, she, I said, look, you know, that's it. Nobody else. No other women and no other guys, right? And she said, yeah, but you've got to really mean this. And I said, look, trust me, I, I, I have learned my lesson and I have been spotless and pure ever since, and that's five or six years ago. And and you're almost I, talking like an addict. Well, I no, 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 no. Spotless no. and pure. No, and pure? no. I mean, I mean. Well, I'm trying to add some levity to an interview. I don't want this to sound like you know, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a self-help session. But if you spend a long time looking for women uh, and you stop doing it, I can't help you. There is a sort of virtue that steals over you. But not only that, and I'm talking a great deal. But since you asked me the question. Well, you're, you're, just getting, you're getting back from me that's taking so long your first question. When you're, faithful, <laughs> when you're faithful to a woman, each year that passes, it's like a piece of architecture is added onto the building. And I love that sensation. Yeah. I love it. Every single year that passes between me and my wife and we've been completely faithful to each other, it's like the architecture underneath us gets that much stronger. There. Now, there's a simple one-word answer to your question. Thank you. Thank you, David. <laughs> Very quickly, the the book, has, huh? and it's a short. <laughs> Very quick. It's a short. It's a, it's a short read. A novella. Uh, a powerful. It's a novella. It's a short, and I would say powerful read. Uh, I must. I read for style. I didn't quite. I should be candid with you. I didn't like some of the similes that you used in the first two chapters. I I felt the two first two chapters were. I was dismissive of them. However, at the end of chapter two, basically what happens is you, and I do see you as the character, I couldn't see anyone else. The main character leaves the house to go to a bar to, to see some women in a band. And he comes back and his young six-year-old boy has gone. And the story basically is the devastation and the, the impact of that on this, this character. But at the end of the second chapter, when Simon, the six-year-old, I believe it's in, you, you tend to go back into dream sequences that deal with the Caribbean and there's a scene when Simon puts his small fingers on your face and told you not to be sad and it struck me that he was the wise parent there and you were the lost child well that's absolutely true uh, I have to uh, return to this uh, this uh, egregiously wrong observation you made about the writing in the first few chapters. It's exactly the same prose machine. The writing, the style is, is clean, there's no fat on it, and there's absolutely no change between the style of the first two chapters and the rest of the novel. That said... That's, that's me being a reader. I'm, uh, that's my interpretation right, of it. Right. You it's have yours. Mis- it's a mistake. It's book. your book, uh, <laughs> and there's no, there's no mistaking taste either. <laughs> and... Uh, well, what the hell does that mean? That means if that's what I think, you are can't you? tell me to think otherwise. Well, I'm trying to show you that you're mistaken. Now, are you fucking with me? Don't fuck with me about my work. What I don't do is I don't put up with bullshit from people about my work. Now, don't you be telling me the quality of my work differs from one chapter to the other. Because that's fucking, I didn't say that is fucking presumptuous. I didn't say that. I won't put up with that bullshit. Do you understand? I, didn't I work too hard at my work to have some journalist wander in here and tell me that one chapter is good and one chapter isn't. Fuck you. Uh, I didn't say that it was uh, good or not good. I simply said that there okay, were some well, walk carefully. In. I've done your job before, you know. People get a little bit careless with their opinions. They start throwing the stuff around. What they forget is that these books are living tissue. They're like children. When somebody walks into the room and says, you know what, I like your first son, but I don't like your daughter, my response is the same to them, which is, fuck you. Yep. Now, and I apologize if I... Uh, if I um, it is offensive. But, okay, please ask your question. Oh, this was a very good question, actually. See, what this book really becomes is a love story between a father and a son. And you're completely right. When the father travels into the underworld to visit the child, 
what he really has there is the beginning of a love story. This book is really about a love affair between a father and a child in the underworld. That's really what, ha what happens. The father loses his son, he goes into the underworld, and this very bizarre relationship starts up. And when this bizarre relationship starts up, suddenly the son, exactly, and you're the first person to put your finger on it, by the way, suddenly the seven-year-old son is looking after his father, because his father is, as we all would be, it's a small mistake he made that causes him to lose his son, but it's, it's still a mistake. And his son is the one who sort of calls the shots in the underworld. The son is the one, because he keeps saying to his son, can I stay? Can I stay here? And his son says, no, you don't belong here. In heaven? In heaven. You don't belong here. You're not ready to come here. And his father never really says, well, where, are, where is here? Because he doesn't want to hear. He doesn't want to hear that it's the afterlife. He doesn't want to hear that it's maybe not a dream world. He doesn't want to hear that it's maybe not the future. He doesn't want to hear that actually they're in the land of, of, of the afterlife. And so the son, the son is looking after his father because his father is wandering around. It's neither human nor ghost, sort of staggering around, just ripped apart by guilt. And his son is saying, look at me. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm here. You can't stay here. And then near the end of the book, of course, there's that moment, which I cannot read out to an audience where a son says, you can stay. And I have never been able to read that without my eyes watering up. I can't read that section. Throughout the, uh, the course of the book, I found that the, the male character, the father, had a, uh, a sort of a loathing of the people in the world. Yes. However, when, and I, it's not necessarily giving away the... It's okay. Can we do that? Yeah, because we can. You know, because we sort of have to. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, the book scares the hell out of people. Yeah. It's actually okay to give away the fact that two of them end up together in the underworld. Okay. At the end of the book. Yeah. Okay. What I found was that this loathing ceased and a warmth took over when the father knew that he was going to kill himself. You're absolutely right. You know, and, and I don't mean to butter you up, but these are questions that I've never been asked. And I've been on the road since this book. What month are we now? April? March? No, where are we? I think we're in November. We're in November. Listen, the reason it's insane. I've been doing interviews for this book since last February. That's, I've been on the road with this off and on for about 10 months. I have to tell you that no one has ever asked me that question. When he actually decides to kill himself, and he decides to kill himself because that's the only way that he can keep his son company in the underworld, the way the world looks changes, and suddenly its awfulness is no longer permanent because he's leaving. And to use a rather trivial example, if you've ever had, as an undergraduate, a terrible apartment... That, that would have been 20, at least 20 years ago, probably 30. <laughs> right. so I'm not a student. <laughs> no, I know you're not a student. I know you thought student. I was going to be one, though. I, well, I did. Because I CKCU is an alternative radio right. station, as well as being housed right. on... No, but still. I thought it was possible that you would have a senior PhD on sort of Persian, you know, Persian literature, you know, pre-6 BC, <laughs> and those things do take 15 years. But if you go back to being a student, or go back to go back to a bad marriage, when you... Just got out of one of those. Thanks. Yeah. Did you? Well, the wonderful thing about a bad marriage is, it's very much like a bad apartment, which is that once you know you're leaving, it actually doesn't look so bad. It's the decision. Once you've taken the decision and you've got through the paralysis and you can actually move. Yes. You're absolutely, you're, you know, when you decide, you look around in a terrible apartment and you go, this place that's been driving me crazy with the, the exposed pipes and the peeling paint. When you know that you're leaving in three weeks, it actually doesn't bother you anymore. And the same thing is true for one's life. 
I think the decision, if you really made a decision to end your life, that my guess is, is that the things that you thought were unendurable were no longer going to be unendurable because they weren't. And so when he has this long trip to the airport and this long flight to the Caribbean, which is really a flight to death, he knows what's at the end of it. And because this is no longer the world in which he's trapped without his son, it actually has a sweetness. And he actually comes to a conclusion about, it's actually not a bad deal, given that we're here for 60, 70 years. He's made a mistake. His life is over. I mean, I have two children. I'm not sure if you have any kids. You have I do kids? have three, yeah. Well, you understand that. If something really happens to our children, yours or mine, that's it. Our life's over. I mean, that's not making it. I mean, we can go on and we conceivably have other children, but if anything ever happens to either one of my children, my life is over. I, I just know that. I mean, I will stay alive. I will kill myself. I'll sort of march on. But you wouldn't kill yourself or you would? No, I wouldn't. I, would definitely, I, I wouldn't because I have another child. And suicide is not an option when you have a living child. You simply cannot do that to the living. You can't do that. It's, it, it is a childish and irresponsible act. The only reason it's all right in this book is he only has one child. But he essentially, if you want to look at this book as a metaphor, really, it is essentially his life. The minute he walks into the bedroom and sees that that child is gone, his life is over. And it's just a question of him finding a graceful way to end it. And then he has this lovely notion that he can actually spend his time with his child in the underworld. But, but that's what keeps his parents at 4 o'clock in the morning when you, when you imagine things happening to your children. I should mention, though, that uh, I have contemplated suicide, like many, uh, and... Uh, Often it's not, depending on what space you're in, it's often not even a choice. It's you're fighting your brain because your brain is trying to destroy you. Yeah, I, you know, and, and it sounds like I'm actually talking to the mirror when you say that. I, I completely, when your brain turns on you, it actually, it's like uh, an independent organ. And it try, it's trying to murder you, it to actually kill you. Is, it actually is trying to murder you. And it is like having another person inside your head. I, I too, have, uh, have had it. And my, my father killed himself. And I think that it was, uh, it was, I think that you have that fight with yourself and you want to kill yourself and you have to win it if you have children. My father should not have killed himself because he had two teenage kids who were going to spend the rest of their lives not scarred by it, but wondering about those last 45 seconds when he was sitting in the kitchen before he put a gun to his temple. What was he thinking? What did the day look like? Was there sunshine coming into the room? Where, where did he find the bullets? You, you have to have sympathy for him. Though, I have an he enormous... Must have, he must have been suffering. It was beyond his control. Yeah. He must believe but that. But you know what? I don't believe that. I think that actually... My father, rest his soul, spent too much time fucking my mother's friends, drinking scotch, and playing golf. I think he was a mean, 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 mean guy. And, and he did some good things to me for me. He sent me to private schools that he probably couldn't have afforded to send me to. But at the end of the day, he was a selfish guy. And he was interested in how he was feeling all the time. And that's not something that you can afford to do when you've got two children. Or you have no business having children. And there's a whole bunch of things I want to do that I just don't do anymore because of my children. And I'd like to. And it annoys me that I can't. But I just don't. It's no. just fascinating. Sorry, it's fascinating that, that this will be the topic of, of a book. And the fact that the father did kill himself. And, you know, it's very hard. To, I know this is going to surprise you. But the notion, the connection between my father killing himself and, and the guy in his book killing himself is, is, is 
a connection that I have never made. This book has to do with my relationship with my own son. And for so I have a daughter too, but there is a particular vulnerability about young boys that fathers feel for them. There's something about them. There's something, there's some strange tenderness about, about uh, young male children that, is, that really breaks your heart. You can't watch them walk across a room when they're seven years old without wanting to burst into tears or hug them. I don't quite understand what that is. This is the first time in, in 10 months of interviews that I've actually talked about my father. But my sort of my egregious, I won't say contempt for his suicide, but I have to tell you, I don't have as much time for it as I used to. When I was 18 years old and my father killed himself, I had a lot of kind of poetic contemplations for it. And, but as I've grown older and my own children have grown up, I've had less and less patience with it. And I think, look, Bub, you know, you were putting the gun to four heads there, not just one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you identify him as being selfish and... Uh but again, illness, mental illness, and, and this is a, a whole other topic, but that, that writers are particularly afflicted with, and uh, suicide is you know, an epidemic I, in this country. Sorry, sorry, but I'm just going to say right. that, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm very, very pleased that you, you are able to talk about it like this, because there's such a stigma around suicide, like there was around cancer. Right. right. And... Uh, and it's really important for, for, I think, for writers in particular who are affected right. by this to, to talk about it. Well, you know, but I, I do feel that, that, you know, kind of the temptations toward suicide and the temptations towards alcohol are, they are an affair of the will. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I know that flies in the face of, of lots of people's beliefs and that AA have done remarkable things for people, but I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I've got as hard a drinking life as any human being who's still alive. You know. But I make choices. I make choices about how not to get fucked up when I have to make my breakfast for my children. I make decisions about not getting fucked up and taking them in the car. Nobody likes getting wrecked more than I do. So when, when, when you say, well, mental illness, you know, you succumb to mental illness and you kill yourself. It's like saying, well, you succumb to alcoholism and you have a drink. You just don't. I just don't. I, personally, I have to tell you, I think it's an affair of will. Yep. And when you have children, you exert your will in every possible way. And that's all you do. And there are no excuses. But I'm going to have to wrap in five minutes. Five minutes. My limo's coming in. in, in You've got it. I wish I could say my limo's coming in. I know. I, I can't say it again for another six years. So look at it that way. <laughs> okay. Um... <laughs> We talked about dream sequences after chapter two. One thing that, that I picked up on was that throughout these dream sequences, it was almost as if the main character, you, in my eyes, What's me? His, uh, his, his life in these dreams is sort of flashing before his eyes throughout the book in a way that people who have had near-death experiences describe. I think that that's very true. Dream sequences are very, very difficult to do in literature because they're about as boring as somebody telling you about last night's acid trip. They are just excruciatingly dull. As soon as I come across a section in the book where somebody said, I dreamt, I stopped paying attention, and I don't pay attention (laughs) until the dream is over. So I realized that I was going to be up against this when I was writing this. And so I had to make them more than dreams. I had to make these actual visitations into the underworld, which it turns out they actually were. Or overworld. Or overworld, yeah. That I mean, I'm glad that you're being ambiguous about it because I'm not really sure where it is, too. I just know that it's not here; it's somewhere else. But it's not as specious as the dream world. You know, it has the rigor of real physics, real buildings, real people, a language. It's the same place they return to. Time moves forward at the same speed. In other words, it is a real place that he visits. And I thought by doing that, I would take some of the gauziness out of dream world. I mean, the problem with dreams is that nothing really matters in them and everything is possible, so there aren't, the stakes aren't sufficiently high. I wanted to have this place have the same laws of gravity that the Earth does. 
There are some beautiful lines too when he was lying down in his bed in this in a grenadier, I think it was. Right. Anyway, he was looking up and saw some crows. Right. It was just beautiful. Right. You know, I, I don't mean to be uh, self-congratulatory, but that whole underworld sequence didn't come to me till the 17th draft. You know, I wrote this book 17. I had no idea. I couldn't get it right. And you're a father, you understand. I tried to write a book about losing a child without really writing about it. So I had a film noir, I had style, I had a John Cassavetes movie, I had everything you can imagine, except the engagement with the subject. If you're going to write about that subject, you've got to be a big boy, you've got to either engage or you've got to write about something else. And I didn't have the balls to engage because it was so painful to imagine anything happening to my children. I didn't know why I was doing it. Was it some morbid tangent, some strange self-punishing thing I was doing, in which case it has no business being published, or was it an authentic artistic impulse? I didn't know. But I had, in Halifax, I was doing a, some goofy show, and I was working on the book in Halifax, and I literally suddenly thought, what this book is about a love story between the father and the son in the underworld, and I must have this underworld. And do you know there was no underworld in any of the earlier drafts? But that, if it's the first time in my life I've ever believed that, if, that there was such a thing as inspiration, I swear that something like God just came to me and said, look, you're missing a whole half of this novel here. And what you're missing is this. Now stay out of the way and we'll tell you how to do it. I honest, I honest to God felt like those sections were dictated to me. All those cliches about literature that I've heard before that I've got right. You, I so you were a kind of a conduit for, I for a creative genius that was and going those, through and those cha- Well, I wouldn't say genius, but yeah, and I have to tell you that I felt like I was transcribing. And those sections and those sections alone in the book are the only sections that weren't rewritten and rewritten. They came out almost as they are published right now. It was like somebody said to me, just stay out of the way, Buster. This is the way it's supposed to go. And I found that to be the most powerful. Well, see, doesn't that make you just, it, it makes you, you, can, you know, it, it, it makes me feel a bit strange because it makes you think there really is such a thing as inspiration or because they are the most powerful sequences and they're the only sequences I can't read when I do a public reading without wanting to burst into tears. I literally think I'm not going to make through them. And that's so interesting that it's almost like that's the real stuff. And that's that stuff pure, is pure, un, unalloyed. Everything else, everything else I worked for, everything else I put a headlock around the pros and worked it, that stuff is just like... Yeah, and uh, not wanting to touch on that, uh, the early part of the book, but I felt that at <laughs> chapter two, because I know this, it's, you know, reactive, really yes. <laughs> but it's almost as if I felt this wave as a reader yeah. hitting yeah. after the first two chapters were over. Right. And, and I'm telling you, I, yeah. I've read quite a few books, and I was deeply emotionally moved by it, more than many that I've read. Right, right. And it wasn't so much the stylism, it was just the pure emotion of the of the piece. I think, you know what, I mean, I, there's no question about it that that book is a slow takeoff, and that when I wrote that early section, I didn't know what was coming. Like, I didn't know I was moving towards the underworld. The underworld just... I wrote the whole book in five weeks. I mean, it was that inspired, that fast. I mean, it did take me 17 drafts, but this draft I wrote in five weeks. So, um, the only question, I know we had a quarrel about this earlier, but I will put this to you. Is it possible that that slight difference in the prose in the first chapter or two might have been just narrative introduction? In other words, putting the building blocks of a narrative in place before the story can actually lift off? I have no criticism of the narrative. The only the only constructive criticism that I'd like to provide is that ah, I, I hate criticism. I know, I noticed I'm, that. I'm, and, our, I and our listeners will <laughs> notice that too. Well, but bad. anyway, please. I, I don't want other I've criticism. Got some, I'm too old. I just want praise. I've See, got some, uh, there's some very specific <laughs> similes that I had a little trouble with. For example, the coal. 
the coal and the uh, cigarettes, the end of the cigarette. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to dispute uh, technique with you, but uh, um, no, I'm not going to dispute okay. Just a, a couple That's of quick... I don't like the lighting in Last Tango in Paris. It's just lunatic. But anyway, go on. I thought it was interesting how you introduced morphine. Now you know my limo's coming. I do know your limo. You have a limo. I understand <laughs> it. What about the limo driver? Are you going to come in here? Maybe he can come in here and Once he can drag you away yeah, you can while I keep going. You can say whether you think this is a <laughs> The morphine yeah. is stolen from, from some place by, by the main character. Yes. I, I thought the fact that he started to use morphine was really interesting in a couple of different ways. This is the type of thing that many people go out with when they die, number right. one. And number two, it just added to the whole dreamy feel of the work, the underworld, the overworld, yes. whatever. I thought that was Lovely. beautifully done. Thank you. Can I tell you a quick story and end this one? Uh, this, when I was a bad young boy. Every party I used to go to, this is when I was in my 30s, the first thing I would do was go up to the bathroom on the pretext of having to use the bathroom. I would go through their medicine cabinet and I would clean out all the fun drugs that they had, morphine, Dilaudid, Percodance, Percocets. So actually, I actually behaved like this for, for a period of my life, for about five or six years. So the people, whenever I said, <clears throat> do you have a washroom in here? <laughs> people would immediately lock up their medicine cabinets. <laughs> Not like locking up their daughters, they yeah. lock up their... <laughs> well, them too. <laughs> First, final question, and that is, and again, don't take this the wrong way, but I thought the, the penultimate chapter the book could have ended there. No, why did you put? Christ why did you put the last? The last chapter reminded me a bit of Tolstoy going through the door and oh, the light. But why did you put the last bullshit. chapter? Why did you put the last chapter in? Because it's only two or three pages. Because that's artistically the right thing to do. Because uh, you need to see them together in the other world. Otherwise, the book notes ends. Uh, it's a book about suicide. And it, in fact, this book is a book about a reunion between a father. I'm not going to argue with you about this. You're just going to listen to this, and then it's gonna, we're going to say goodbye. This book is about a love story between a father and a son in the underworld, and the book must end with the two of them together. And the last sentence of the book is he walks into the room, and he's with his son, and that's what it's about. If it had ended where you would have ended it, it would have been a book about suicide.